Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Lee O'Brien. Hi Hello. Lee. Hi. Um, we've once again got um, Lee into the studio and this was, um, the subject of today's podcast was actually your idea, Lee. Yes, it was. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll get you to explain why you brought this particular topic to us, <laughs> yes. but I'm yes. very, very excited for this yes. podcast because yes. this was um, one of the authors that made my childhood reading. And today we're talking about Enid Blyton. Enid Blyton. Yes, we are. And it's all my fault. It's delightful. And, and, and yes. I was trying to remember um, why. <laughs> why, <laughs> why I Enid suggested Blyton? that we would go uh, go here. And, and it's a whole it's a whole cluster of things. Um, you know my passion for school stories. And um, beginning with Tom Brown's school days, but particularly coming through to Kipling and Storky and Co. And then P.G. Woodhouse has some fascinating um, school stories. And what I love about school stories, um, A, they sort of cross the boundary between children's lit and adult lit. Because the readers are not not necessarily... um, they're not children for school stories, so it's but it, it's about school experiences. It's literature about children and constructing the child. So there's that kind of boundary territory. But I also don't ever believe that um, children's literature is always specifically exclusively for children either. So mm. I think there's that kind of crossover with that. So I got interested in that and... I, I, I can't remember what the exact connection was, but, but it made me think something made me think of the famous five. Yes. And I said to my husband, did you did you read Enid Blyton? He said, oh, vaguely. He said, I, I seem to remember the famous five and the secret seven. And I remember reading them. I can't remember any detail about them, but I do remember she was part of my childhood. Yeah. And the Noddy and Big Ears books when I was a very young child. I don't think I read the Gollywog books, which have got her into such hot water. Yes. And basically just meant that she was off, that people wouldn't go there anymore because of the racist stereotypes and all that kinds of stuff that was, she was considered to represent. So I thought, well... Here is a case. She's the most popular children's author ever. Mm. Her books are still selling. They're widely available. Apparently, children are still reading them. Mm. So it was part of this recovery of women's writing. That that was part of my interest in her. But I also find that when a, when a writer gets this really bad reputation for being middle class and sexist and racist and all these bad things. I, I don't think it's a, a necessarily a bad thing to go back and have a look at them and see what they're actually doing. Mm. So that's what I started to do. So that's me. I want to talk to you. I want to get on to another way of looking at them, but we need to know about you, Anina Blyton. Well, I, I did read the Noddy and Big Ears and all of that sort of stuff when I was very little, and I absolutely loved the um, the Magic Faraway Tree and the Enchanted Forest. Ah. Those were my very – but they're much for much younger um, readers than, than the Famous yes. Five or, or other things that yeah, we'll talk about. But they're sewing those two, in particular the Magic Faraway Tree and the Enchanted Forest, which were about the same group of kids. They're just imprinted on me so much. Yeah. I can just remember the food. 
The food. Yes. The food in in the in the um so the the magic faraway tree is literally a tree that is in the middle of a forest that these um these kids discover and it's a magical tree with all sorts of magical beings that live in it and when you go right up to the top of the tree there's a different land that passes across the top of the tree that you can access like it's there for a week or so and yeah. then it moves on and another <laughs> land replaces it and then this land of like the endless ice cream oh. and the, you know etc and there's this there's this um moon face who and and um silky who make these pop biscuits and they're biscuits that you eat and they pop and all this warm honey comes out, oh and I swear I can taste them still. Um, so that yes. was that was I loved them, yes. but the ones that I probably was closest to, and read over and over again as a, as an older child, were the Naughtiest Girl in the School series, uh, which I absolutely adored. So there were three books that I used to read: the Naughtiest Girl in the School, the Naughtiest Girl again, and the Naughtiest Girl is a Monitor. Oh um, no! Yes. Right. So, and you know what? I've been thinking about them and they're completely socialist paradises in this, in this school because the, the school is set up as this kind of progressive, politically kind of progressive school, which at the time I didn't really register. And the naughtiest girl, um, who is the main character of all of the books, although there are other side characters that you spend a lot of time with, um, she comes from quite a wealthy family and she doesn't want to go to this school and one of the things that this school does that is incredibly socialist is it asks that you basically give all your money into a, into a tin. So if your parents send you money, you give all of the money that you are sent into a tin and then everybody is distributed an equal amount of money. I know, which is amazing, but right? This is common property. I know, the yeah. Private property. This yeah, is like <laughs> exactly. This is this is Marxism. It's fantastic. Um, so the naughtiest girl in the school. One of the first things that happens to her in the first book is that she decides that this is outrageous. She's rich. She should be able to spend her money. She's a prime capitalist, and she retains her money. She doesn't put it in the in the box. But then, of course, she's seen down at the local chocolate shop buying sweeties. Um, and so the the volume of sweeties that she is purchasing plus the book she also buys a book um, adds up to more than the acceptable like what they had been distributed for the week and so she's reported and she gets in trouble and she has various improving moralizing conversations and she comes around to um, the utility of this socialist system where you are distributed a fair amount so that everybody even if you put nothing into the box gets a fair amount of uh, an equal amount of of money and it's very it's very preachy because yes, i revisited well yeah yeah i revisited the i didn't read the whole thing but i, I read bits of it um to prepare for this podcast and it is it is all about, you know, various morally improving exercises that these kids do at school. You know, they all have to they all have to have tasks that they do that are like useful tasks. Yeah. So they can't spend their free time, you know, lying around. They have to spend their free time like gardening. Oh. And then they get in trouble if they don't, you know, properly clean their gardening implements <laughs> and all of this sort of stuff. So it is very morally imp improving and preachy and didactic. And that's a bit painful. But I love this idea of yeah. the money. It's fantastic. Yeah. Now, now, tell me, though, so can you remember, is is the school, because obviously what you're saying, it's, uh, I haven't read it, so, so 
I've read, I reread some famous fives for this podcast. And yeah. You, you've re- reread your lot. So we, we don't have a common yep. um, reading base this time around. So I was listening to you talk. Is the, set up, is the school set up to be ridiculed or is it, is, are these ideas actually taken seriously? They're taken incredibly seriously. Oh, that's re- I find that really interesting because mm. that's not what, what they're going to, uh, um, encounter once they leave school no so they're going back so they're so it where's she going with that what what what's she because it 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 resonated with what i'd been finding in the famous five which is this really she really values um companionship and, and student uh, student children getting on with each other mm. and not not fighting and not being nasty and that sort of that cooperative endeavor mm. based on friendship and based on um, common values is what is really pushed in a I think it's a nice way but it's very obviously it's didactic and and, and that's what separates children's lit a lot from adult mm. lit the, the overt nature of the didacticism it's not that adult stuff isn't didactic but it's it, it tells us what to do and what to think in a, in a different way but I, so that that that's a very interesting parallel with uh, with the books the the, the, the social values that she cares very much about, that children learn, that you don't hurt your friends. You have to be loyal. Mm. If you've got something, you share with it. And even Timmy the dog. I mean, Timmy is <laughs> yeah. one of the famous five. Timmy has to have his sandwich and his, his chocolate. And, you know, when they Chocolate go, is poisonous for dogs. I'm very worried about Timmy. Oh, no. Well, no. No, Timmy gets a bit of chocolate if there's any chocolate going. Oh, I dear. Didn't know. Well, Timmy survives his chocolate oh, good. quite re- good, good, really good. well. But basically, Timmy likes the sandwiches. and the... Oh, that's right. And they George takes... Um, his his biscuits, his dog biscuits. When when as as they're always doing, they're going out of adult range, which we'll get onto that later. But she she and she takes a special shrimp paste. <laughs> so Timmy loves his dog biscuits with shrimp paste on them. That so sounds revolting. It, it does sound yeah. revol- revolting. But you are not a dog, Steph. No, I am not a dog. And that he loves true. his dog biscuits treated like that. So just you know, no, I'll go. We'll, with we'll it. put the yep, culinary yep. stuff aside. But it's the same. It's the same kind of thing that you're you're find these. I think I might have to start reading these naughty girls. It's it's the it's that insistence on community values, mm. individuals, yes, but but we're all bound by community values, mm. and we've got to work very hard to make sure that the villains don't don't prevail first famous five is 1942 so you can imagine the kind of context that she's writing in mm. um so yeah so i just i i find that really interesting so what happens to the naughtiest girl in the school well she starts off very naughty um but she's very quickly reformed um she runs into scrapes because she's a little bit um i don't know chaotic but she um she is very selfish when the books start, and you're exactly right. She has to learn communal values. She has to learn about the um, friendship. Yeah. So she's come from a very wealthy family and is very selfish as a result because she's quite spoiled. And she doesn't have many close friends her own age. In fact, I don't think she has any close friends her own age when she starts. So upper middle class wealth, not aristocratic yeah. Not wealth, crist- uh, aristocratic, uh, but upper, uh, rich, uh, upper, upper middle class, right. definitely. Um, and she learns about having friends and sharing and um, 
telling the truth yes. and all of these kinds oh, of um, the yeah goodness whatever <laughs> I know um, so yeah she learns about all of these ways to live with within a kind of more communal system I suppose yes, yes. and she, but she also has to be disciplined out of her unruliness like she's messy um, because she's at home she's got somebody there oh, the maid to pick up for her picking and here she has her. to she, she has to do her own bed and put right. her out, away her clothes and yeah. she finds that very difficult yeah. so her unruliness has to be kind of disciplined yeah um and she still has scrapes so there's three books and if she's reformed too much too early there's no there's no story but the third book the naughtiest girl is the monitor is about how she was she used to be the naughtiest girl in the school but now she's a monitor so she has to police others and help that they get the right messages and so um that's where um the the example of not cleaning their gardening tools comes from because one of the little boys that she is a monitor to um he is also naughty and he doesn't clean his garden tools and then they might rust and they're not shiny and silver Mm. so she has to talk to him and you know counsel him about this so she becomes very good and she's in the, within, within the terms of the within the terms school of the school values. Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. why I say that the school is not at all ridiculed. Like, um, remember Eustace in the Chronicles of Narnia books? He also went to a progressive I school. Read, I'm sorry. Oh. Am I allowed to? I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That. That's okay. But <laughs> that's C.S. Lewis, isn't it? Yeah. So C.S. Yeah. Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia books. Um, one of the cousins of the main family. Um, he has gone to a progressive school, and he's got all of these kind of like highfalutin ideas and um those are comprehensively destroyed like the point is that he's a terrible child and he has to learn you know to like leave these values of these progressive vegetarian schools um (laughs) he has to learn to leave them behind and he's disciplined in other ways but this school even though it is super progressive is taken incredibly seriously the whole point is that you should learn to be and i can't remember the name of the school sadly but um you need to learn how to be a good school child in, within the context of this, the, the rules that the school operates. Can you remember the dates? Um, I will look them up right, right now, Could... <laughs> which I <laughs> Sorry, should have done. I, did, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I was just thinking if they're post, um, post-war, post-Second World War, so she would be reflecting the continuing changes in class structure the first novel was in 1940. 40, so there, so that predates the famous five. So it's actually in wartime. So that necessity to cooperate, that's 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 the blitz. That's mm. that's that's and Hitler is the enemy, and so we yeah, have you to all know what together. we stand for. Yeah. And class distinctions are can't be um, allowed to. Um, obliterate our essential Englishness mm. because if we are fighting amongst ourselves, Hitler is going to prevail and we will lose everything. Mm. We, we won't be England anymore because she's very, very English. There's, oh, yes. There, there, it's there, the there epitome of English. way of getting around. And everybody who writes about Enid Blyton comments on the fact that even though she's so particularly, specifically English, she has an enormous appeal right across languages. She's been translated into other languages. Mm. She's read in Australia and in Europe, in mm. Africa. She's, I don't know about American. I, I don't know if the Americans ever took to her, but I, I believe they did. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's interesting that this, 
this essential Englishness has an appeal that 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 crosses all kinds of national mm. boundaries. I don't know. I mean, I I, I guess there's some fairly um, um, negative sort of post-colonial readings of that that mm. we actually can't get away from it because yeah. of, because of our history and our language. It's a shared language. So um, yeah, I, I I I'm just interested in in this Second World War context. Um, yeah. Well, I just looked and all of them were, one was, the first one was 1940, the second one was 1942, and the last one was 1945. So they all have a, so they're all, they all have a war context. So I think you're context. right, that is completely yes. what's going on in this book. Well, you can see it with the famous five because the famous five are always pitted against enemies that come in, at, mm. outside and are trying to do bad things. So... And I hadn't actually picked this up. I haven't done a lot of secondary reading on Blyton, um, but I there's there's one um, book, critical book in our library that I started reading that I got irritated with. But anyway, yeah. um, but, but that um, that the point was made in that 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 um, you can see that a lot of the values that she's pushing. Are coming out of the the threat that 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 the UK, the Britain is is facing, mm. and this necessity to make to uh, to identify values that are English, not because they're powerful, but because they are so grievously under threat. Mm. Um, and it wasn't you know if Hitler didn't make the mistake of you know attacking Russia and fighting on two fronts. I mean there was. There was mm. a, there, was real, there yeah. was real chance that that they would lose the war. Then the Americans came in. The Americans were goodies back then. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. the Americans came in, and and so so I just found that in some ways the famous five are like little they're, they're little adults in that way. Oh, they're, that's interesting. Yeah. They have kind of military, almost a military sense of duty and honor to each other and, and protecting things so that i found that really interesting but one of the things there are so many things that i because the, the gender politics are fascinating we need to get mm. on to that but i also found it really interesting how absent adults are yes because this is what i meant when i said i started thinking about this stuff in the context of school stories but these are not the famous five are not school mm. stories it's the famous five can only be the famous five because they're outside school. They they make references to their school and in, in quite affectionate ways. It's a boarding school. So and they they're allowed to have pets at the boarding school. So when George um goes to the same school as her cousins, the other famous five people, she's allowed to take Timmy. <laughs> so there's a very benign um mm representation of of school but it's off limits it's got nothing to do with what the fi famous five do because they're always on holiday yeah and i think this must be part of the appeal of them yeah and they're always i just had to laugh they're always doing the most dangerous things and i thought god <laughs> where's the adults you know i wouldn't let my daughter do this they're out in boats in the open ocean and, and they go down there's always secret caverns mm. and, and and treasure the the, the treasure hidden and the bad are trying to get the treasure and, and they're going down, you know, in, in these subterranean passages and, and so I'm thinking, well, you know, where's the supervision? I know. Well, it's a bit like that in the Magic Far Away Tree books because, they again, there's, there's the mother. I think in those books from memory, the father might be way at war. 
well, because it's the, only the mother is oh, there. Fathers get a bit of a bad press in in the famous oh, five really? because they go, they. Well, one thing that struck me though is the absentee notion of parenthood, because at the beginning, the first famous five story, I read the first one, and then I've read. Uh, three from the middle, and I was going to read a few late ones, but I didn't get time. But the first one, the setup is the parents decide they want to go to Edinburgh or somewhere. They want to be away by themselves. And the children say, oh, that's very disappointing. We were all going to go on a holiday together. <laughs> and the parents say, no, too bad, you know. Oh, run along, <laughs> children. So they're coming out of boarding school, and they're coming home for the holidays, and the parents decide that they're not going to have their holidays with them anyway. Oh, so you've just done the whole so year without just, them. You've yeah. just done the whole... So that uh, that was a bit surprising. But So they go to their uncle. They, this is where, um, what is it, Julian, Dick, and Anne go to, say, at Karen Island, and that's that's where George, Georgina, that's mm. where Georgina and Timmy are and with their uncle and aunt. And the uncle is this crazy, cranky, nasty scientist. He's a scientist, so he gets obliquely involved in military kind of stuff. But he's a really nasty piece, of, really cranky, really angry with the children, and so they have to circumvent him all the that's time. And the mother is, um, I used to think, well, the, the mother's working like a slave, but then you find out that there is a cook. So she, because mm. the food, I was fascinated when you were talking about the food. The food is quite, um, it, it's described in detail. And there's a lot of salads and a lot of fresh food. And I thought, yes, well, this is didactic too. And yet then I thought, well, this is in the war. This is a time of rationing. So I think she's, pro and they get, their food is from the garden. Mm. So I think even that has a link to it. It must have had a, a bit of a fantasy level for some city oh, children. Yeah, that's definitely the case in in Naughty School. They have so many midnight feasts. It's and I think yeah. it has a fantasy level because I, I mean rationing was terrible. People, you know, they had to line up with their ration books and but because they're in the the country mm. and this is where the famous five. So they get out of the school system. They get out of the big city there in the mm. country so there's all these liberating sort of moves that she she puts them through but i was surprised the salads you know fresh lettuce from the garden and cucumbers and tomatoes and radishes and all and they and they the children love it mm. and they love their potatoes and, and all this kind of stuff and i thought well yes yeah, she's teaching them good eating habits <laughs> but i wonder too if there's not an opinion you know how they had to move a lot of children out of london because yeah. of the blitz and i was wondering if there was this way of she's she's saying to children well i know you're frightened and scared but if you think about this as a holiday i wonder if the famous five were were in some senses standing in oh, that's a good idea for that yeah. dispossession and that movement out because a lot of children i mean they they i was reading about jewish children who were sent to london and they some of them never saw their families again mm. and 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 then the children who were sent to Australia and then got appallingly treated here. There was children were being really badly treated at this time. Yeah, that's really interesting because, yeah, the, the magic faraway tree is very much like that. There, there's a single mother, as I said, and then the father, I think, is away at war, but that's from memory. Um, and then they just have these adventures by themselves and they, you know, they're not parented in the way that we would expect. No, not at all. 
No. They just they just do these adventures no. and go off no. all day, no. and they have to come home for tea. But you know that they they can pretty much do what they want, and yeah. they go off into these strange fantasy lands. And there's always a little bit of a threat because um, some of these fantasy lands they're magical, but they're not always benign. Some of them are scary, right. and some of them are dangerous. And there's always a little bit of a threat that they'll get caught there, and that it'll move on. The land will move, and then, what, and then they'll be back? stuck. Right, and then they'll be stuck until it comes around again, or mm. perhaps it—it's it, mm. not really clear. Like it's mm. never—it's not like there's a schedule of which land is going to appear. Yeah, it's sort of a, a you know oh, a surprise, yeah, a fresh surprise yeah. every week, yeah. or however many days. Yeah. So there is a there's a sense of threat, but it's it is like an eternal holiday in some ways. Yeah. When it's when the going is good, and when the land is is a is a lovely kind yes. of. Fantasy land, yes. and often it is a fantasy land around food. So that's a really interesting point about the yes. about that kind oh, of yes. and escapism. They, they they when they when they leave to the they're in their house on Karen Island, and there's the so the house is on the mainland, and Karen Island has this ruined castle on it, very gothic, yeah. ruined castle on it. And and to get to Karen Island in the boat, they have to navigate rocks. It's actually quite dangerous sea. Nobody ever stops them doing this. In fact, the mother is saying, "Oh yes." Go, go go out yeah, yeah. enjoy yourself it's on fine the, in the shoals and reefs. yeah 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 um but yeah there, there's this sense of um making giving children an adult life mm. within but by evading parental control you know that's even now that I'm thinking about it that's even there in the naughtiest girl in the school because one of the things that makes this school progressive is not just it's like you know, taxation policy, mm. but it's um, it's actually the discipline in the school is meted out by the children. Yeah. So the the thing with being a monitor is that you're a little bit older. Yeah. Um, and you have the you have the power to actually discipline the other students. Yeah. So they have these meetings that they would have once a week, and if any student has done something naughty, um, or wrong, then it's their punishment is discussed. So the monitors will bring will bring it to the meeting and say, "Well, I found little Johnny lying," right. and then the meet the meeting collectively, mm. which is every student in the school. So mm. I don't know how big this school is supposed to be, no. but every student in the school, um, it's a boarding school, which might explain why it's a little bit smaller. Um, every student decides what the punishment will be. So it's not like they take it to the teachers. The teachers have no, a role, but no. they they have a very kind of just an educative role. They mm. don't have a, mm. a like didactic role. No. And so they discuss the, the penalty and the penalty might be that you have to get up at whatever and help the janitor do his chores or whatever. So you, you don't get oh. to, or you, you have to go yeah. to bed without dessert or something. Mm. Um, so the school, the kids decide their own punishments collectively. There's no... Um, adult figure who says you've done this wrong, yeah. you have to go to detention like they would in a conventional school. Well, if you're going to let that happen, you're going to have to be very sure that your children are decent. Exactly, children, it's very important you? that they've swallowed the Kool Aid. Because yeah. you see the other side of that in the Storky and Co. Um, stories, the Kipling um, stories, that, which most people loathe because they hate the three main characters. But the point <laughs> of the three main characters in Storky and Co. is that they are rebels. Mm. And that the rules of the school are not necessarily benign. Mm. And the monitors, I know the term prefect rather than monitor. monitor. Yeah, yeah. Me too. So, but the prefects are not always in control. And, and it's very important that the head boy, and because it's boys' schools with, with Kipling, 
um, can can maintain order. It's that Lord of the Flies yeah. idea that 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 if if you let them sort of go off on their own, what you're not going to get is caring and sharing. You're going to get murder and mayhem, which is the opposite. <laughs> because Enid Blyton suggests with these books, yeah, is, is the exact it's, opposite. It's the exact yeah. opposite, and the murder and mayhem and the Lord of the Flies stuff is coming from the adults because mm. the adults are the enemy. In in they're either benign benignly neglectful <laughs> as parents or the they're the enemy they come in they there's there's hidden treasure in the first one and somehow these baddies find out that it's there and they lock you know they they um you can't lock children well they do they lock them up underground and they're trying to steal from them so there's that real sense of adult perfidy and mm. a, adult bad behavior so it's a complete switch from school stories so um, I also wanted us to talk a bit about gender politics yeah. because yes. that's got her into trouble. Because I read this this book review, um, people discussing their um, response to Blyton, and a lot of people say they adored her as a child, but there came a point in their adolescence where they just looked at the stories and thought, Ugh, you know, I can't take that anymore. And so they moved from loving them to hating them almost overnight. Mm. And a lot of, um, in, in this book I was, did, when I got out of the library, a lot of writers about Blyton are trying to negotiate their adult disgust with her politics, with their childhood delight in the novels that, that just really didn't have anything to do with politics. It, it's so, or, or not, you know, obviously. But I, I just, so I was interested in that process of rereading because I, I, I don't, actually remember them all that vividly from my childhood but reading them now as an adult I'm finding them absolutely fascinating mm. and it's not because I agree with the politics or, or necessarily but it's because as, as you usually get with with children's lit that the it's it's right there it's in your face the values are, are so mm. on the surface and but this um I I was interested in the way that she can be misread because these people are discussing it, and the, and one of the novels I'd, I'd actually read, it's called Five Go to Mystery Moor, and I wanted to read that because I love Wuthering Heights, yes. and I thought, oh, maybe there's a... Oh, they pay Five Wuthering Heights, yes. Yeah, and this one, there's a little gypsy boy, and and they they talk about the exchange, um, and the little gypsy boy says, and will you come to see my caravan? I shall be all alone there except for Liz. Well, I suppose it would be something to do, said Dick. Yes, we'll come. I hope it's not too smelly. And this reader is, gets all upset because the little gypsy boy doesn't con consider that Liz, the little girl, is a human being. and He's going to be alone mm. there, except for Liz. Mm. The trouble with that reading is that Liz is a dog. Yeah. And, and I thought, well, um, I, wonder <laughs> if that, I wonder if that is... What happens with Blyton that people write about her without actually reading her carefully? Because that's yeah. pretty mean. You know, you you you, can't, you shouldn't be that shouldn't be published. That somebody yeah. can really hit her hit her over the head for her gender. The implication is that Liz is not considered to be a human being. Well, well she is isn't a, a human dog. being. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's that's not, quite true. <laughs> so, you know, and I and I thought, well, if you're going to criticise Blyton using that kind of sloppy reading. Hmm then I think it's time to maybe have a look at her again. Well, you know what? When you were talking about gender politics, I was thinking about the naughtiest girl in the school 
school's gender politics. And even though she shows, you know, the girls doing things like cleaning and the boys doing things like gardening, which is irritating, it's actually much more egalitarian than that suggests. Because you, it's not like the boys are in control here in this student kind of organized system. There's as many girl monitors as there are boy monitors. They have the same kind of power. It's a mixed gender school, obviously. They have the same kind of power. They have the same kind of authority. They're taken as seriously as each other. So it's not like it's, you know, even though we still have like a gender distribution of labor, Mm. um, they are in a power sharing arrangement. So it's not like the boys ever have the power and authority that that girls um, don't have. And one of the interesting things about the book is the way, one of the ways that Elizabeth, who is the main character, gets out her anger because she gets very angry. One of the things about her is that she finds it hard to control her anger. She starts playing lacrosse because she can be violent. <laughs> and like, I, I don't know, that's amazing. Like this, this girl has a, she's given, take, and it's taken very seriously. This like idea that she can that she can exercise her her anger through sports. Through sports. That seems to hockey me quite one, too, right? Yeah, that seems to me quite progressive in its own way. Yeah, that she's yeah. she's good at sports. That's taken seriously. Yes. She has yeah. anger that she needs to exercise. That's taken seriously, and that she needs a a kind of. Um, way of exercising it is taken yes, seriously. Yes, and there's yes, not a kind of yes. like the, you know, she's ungirly for being a bit vi- being a bit aggressive. It's just something that she has to deal with in healthy ways rather than, you know, like yelling at her fellow yes. student. Okay. So it's actually not as, not as well, problematic. Ba- it's not as straightforwardly bad. There are bad uh, things about the gender politics, yeah. obviously, but it's not as, as kind of broad brush stroke as as that review perhaps suggests no yeah and but it's it's not as simple as that i'm i'm, no. I'm sorry to have to tell you no but i think in the famous five it's really it's just so interesting yeah because, oh it's very bad in, in magic yeah, far away tree because we've got so that julian is the oldest he's he's a i think he's 11 or 12 and he has a brother dick and a, and a sister anne and Anne is a girly girl. Anne is very feminine. And they have to watch Anne because, because Anne tends to sort of blurt out their secrets. And they, so they're always kicking Anne under the table because Anne is, is incurably honest and open. So when, the, when the, um, they, they get into a lot of trouble because George has been ordered to get rid of Timmy because Tim, Timmy's a messy dog and he's, he's interrupting father's you know mm. t- quiet time in the study. So instead of getting rid of Timmy, George has taken Timmy to the local fisherman's family to be looked after. And so she go, leaves home every day because she wants to be with Timmy. And they that's all her adventure. And she's been doing that by herself. And and so um, George, Georgina, George will not permit anyone to call her Georgina. So George is the classic tomboy. 
and Anne is the classic girly girl. And poor old Anne does really get the rough end of the mm. stick. If anyone's going to be asked to clean up the picnic side, it, it's Anne. That's exactly what happens in Magic Railway uh, yeah, Tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Anne's like, loose, 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 what is it? Loose words take lives or something. And, and so even within that wartime context, Anne is the one who's likely to start telling the secrets to the enemy, you know, the, all the others. And the Julian in particular is always kept as really the one who has fundamental authority and they all adore him and there's a sort of kind of a hero worship of him so that is never displaced that that is uh, that is the ones so that I've chronicles read, of narnia yeah, that in mm. the ones that i've read and i haven't read them all and i'm going to go back to enid blyton mm. you know i have to put a brown cover on it if i read it in in public oh don't be but i can own it, it you know i can read it at home oh own and it. <laughs> and, and I, but as far as to the best of my knowledge julian always it's so it's hierarchical it, it's the oldest boy then Dick is an interesting figure. He's the younger brother and he's a bit flaky and he's not always as sort of reliably, nobly male, mas masculine as as. God, as this is Julian. the same as the Chronicles of Narnia. Is it? It's exactly the okay. same. Does Narnia come afterwards? Oh, I don't know. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, no, I, no, no, um, that's all right. Because um, I've never read it. All I know, it's Christian allegory, isn't it's it? It's Christian Narnia? allegory, yeah, but... Yeah, no, I don't blame you. It was such a disappointing moment in my childhood when I re when I figured that out. Um, I, yeah, it was published in 1950, the first one. Um, oh, but so it's, there's, it's there's four the, yeah. siblings. Oh. The older brother, Peter, is the one that they all hero worship, yeah. and he is High King Peter of Narnia. Um, he becomes High King Peter. And he's the one that is like the hero and the, the golden boy. Right. And his younger brother, Edmund, is the one that sort of stuffs things up for them. Oh, okay. Um, Dick doesn't quite do that. Yeah. Dick can rescue them. Yeah, okay. But he reforms. Oh, okay. He reforms. And Susan, this is the most enraging. So I'm far more enraged by Lewis's gender relations more so than Blighton. Blighton. Because there's seven books, right? And the, the, the Pevensies, the main family, are in in them to a certain extent. They get older and they don't come back and there's oh. new characters. But they're, they're always there. So Susan is the, is the pretty feminine one. And she's the yeah. one who... Um, cares about things like her, her looks oh, yeah, and, right, right, you know, right. dressing up. Mm -hmm. And as they grow older, because it does sort of track them into young adults, the last book, which I found, I find incredibly, very distressing. So the last book is The Last Battle, right? Mm -hmm. And so they haven't um, gone back to Narnia for a few years because they've been deemed too old. Um, the All of the main characters, this is a massive spoiler, but it's so stupid that I wouldn't recommend you read the book anyway. The, and so the, the last in the last battle, what happens is Narnia dies, and but it's replaced by like a heaven version of Narnia. Oh, okay. And all of the main characters die in a train crash. Oh, okay. Which is good oh, because then they get to pretty... go to heaven Narnia. Oh, they go to heaven. Oh, so okay. all of the, the deaths are great. Oh, the okay. only character who doesn't die in the, in the train crash is Susan, and that's because Susan's not allowed to come back to Narnia because Susan now cares. She's an adult now, and she cares about makeup. She cares about lipstick, oh, so and she cares about nylons. Roundly punished. So she doesn't. Oh, she's going, roundly no punished. So no heaven Narnia for Susan, what? and it is so overtly sexist. <laughs> and Lucy, the younger sister, she's once tempted. She she 
he's once tempted to like be as pretty as, as Susan, but she has to, you know, come to the realization that that's not important and that Susan's fallen off the path of righteousness because she cares about lipstick. Because she cares about lipstick. It's well, so enraging and so time. dumb. Daughters of Eve. But that's so. That's exactly yeah. what they talk. They're called. Yeah. They're called daughters oh, of Eve. Like quite are. explicitly. It's all. It's all ready to rock and roll, isn't it? But that's so similar to the, to the famous five. Well, and see the only. Anne, Anne doesn't. Anne is 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 not adolescent, so she's 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 not into the makeup and anything like. That. She's a child, but Anne does. She she's not too keen on the danger, mm. and whereas George loves it. So George has all the fun. George has got cropped hair. George looks like a boy. When she's they, gender fluid. Every, <laughs> when they, when people first see George, they always see her as a boy. Fantastic. And that's how George has the freedom because she doesn't have to behave like a girl. Now, this is a pattern that's reiterated in several of the novels. One of them, this young um, American girl comes to stay with the, the, the family and she's super pretty, got blonde hair and curls and pretty clothes. And the the plot is that she's the daughter of a scientist. They're threatening to kidnap her and get the scientific secrets. So they have to disguise her. What do they do? They chop off all her hair and they turn her into a boy. Oh, and there's lots and lots of comments throughout what a wonderful boy she makes. Uh, how she's even all these books nicer. are so interesting. Yeah, she's even nicer looking as a boy than she is as a girl. Oh. And in another story, so George is Georgina, who will always be called George. They meet Henrietta in another story, who's the same thing. She's a tomboy, and Henrietta will only be called Henry. And Henry and George hate each other on sight. So one part of the socialising oh. of that, because because they, they 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 impinging on each other's turf. turf. Yeah. Mm. So George is really put out about it. And, and so she plays all that game of socialising game. George has hissy fits about Henrietta, Henry being part of the famous five because she's really not. And so they just have to let leave her alone. They go away for a day without her and just make her realise how she really needs the famous five. And she has to behave herself even if it means liking Henry. But it's fascinating, and Henry is a more successful boy because Henry has straight hair. So when they cut the hair, because mm. curls are considered to be effeminate, mm. so George can never, be, even though George is continually mistaken for a boy, she's still, you know, she's got the curly hair, so she's borderline girly. Oh, it's fascinating. Wow, Stephanie. it is really. And fascinating. that's calling for a really interesting queer reading. Ah, uh, it is. Mm. Yes. Yes, it is. And and there so but what what is so it's still very conventional, isn't it? What, mm. So if you want to be if you want to really have the freedom to act, mm -hmm. you've got to ditch all this girly stuff. Mm -hmm. You can't be you can't be a fully paid up member of the race if you're a girly girl. There's a little bit of that in Naughtiest Girl still. Um it's not as overt, I don't think. But one of the things that Elizabeth needs to learn is to be less impressed with her own looks. Right. Um, because she's Vanity quite pretty. Name is... Yeah, exactly. Right, okay. So she has to learn to be less vain. But I don't think I don't think it's as overt as, as, as all that from mm. my memory. Mm. But certainly one of the things that she needs to do is to be more tomboyish in that she's less kind of concerned with um with her appearance and less worried about getting dirty yes. and, you know, spoiling yes. her frocks. But yes. she still is girly. Yes. She still retains her, her 
um, she's very pretty and she's always represented mm. as being very pretty. Mm. Um, but it is a little, it is a little less problematic, I think, than Naughty's Girl, at least from my memory. Probably if I went back and read them over no. more carefully, I would be all sorts well, of outraged. Well, I might have to read more because there may be stories where Anne comes good. I mean, she's always part of the team. They never mm. they never leave her out. So there's not that you're a stupid girl, you can't play with us. There's none of that. They 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 try and make her not give up people's secrets and things, but mm. they but and they try and sort of socialise her into being more boyish in certain ways. But she's never she's valued, you know, she's yeah. she's part yeah, yeah, of yeah. the famous five. Um, but she's playing all kinds of games with identity because in one of the stories they're all camping out on the moors. They take food and they're just completely alone on the moor. <laughs> that just, sounds I, very I, safe. Yeah, it, it, full of uh, on an archaeological site full of pits and 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 underground caverns, which of course they go into and could get lost forever and nobody would even know where they are. This is a mother in me reading these things. But there's twin boys in this particular story and the famous five don't know there's two of them. So they keep meeting <laughs> the boys who have, and one of them has, is, has vaguely feminine qualities and it, and is a little bit vicious with it. Mm. And the others, and no, no, it's the other way around. The nice one is the boy, the twin that has the slightly playful feminine qualities. And the, no, that's right. And the, and the other twin is more sort of, stereotypically masculine, a bit, bit nasty and a bit aggressive. And so the famous five have to negotiate that and then they have to find that there's two, not one. But the the, the interesting thing about the story is that these twins are inseparable. Mm. And there's this, um, oh, it's, it's actually quite interesting how she's observing that psychological dependency between the two twins. Oh, wow. And Gladys Mitchell has a, a story called Echoing Strangers about twin males who um, their their primary identification is with the other twin and everybody else is extraneous. So I don't know. I, I, I don't think even though you're going to perhaps accuse Enid Blyton of being racist because of the gollywogs and sexist because of Anne and, and mm. all the girly stuff. I don't think anyone could ever in, uh, accuse her of not being intelligent mm. and not really understanding the complexities of the stereotypes she's working with. That's what I like about her. Mm. And I don't know about you, but I actually think as a writer, she's quite good. And oh, I've, yeah. read, I've read stuff saying she's a rotten writer. Well, I think... I don't think she is. Yeah, and I think that those those kinds of assessments are predicated on the fact that like kids don't care about that, but I actually do think they do because it was such a I mean, it's she's such a part of a lot of our childhoods, I yeah, think. Yeah. And I don't think like I read a lot as a kid and not everything worked and operated upon me the way Enid Blyton did. So I don't and I don't yeah. think that that's you know, I'm not saying like I was, you know, sitting there going, well, the writing is fantastic. No. But I think that she's good. Yeah. She's a good I writer for good children. There's the, the, the sentences are grammatically pure. They're like limpid pools. Mm. They are brilliant. And she really knows how to make a plot and how to describe things so economically. And if they still have an appeal, which I believe that they do, I mean, that's an amazing thing because there's a lot of books that are written in that time, which I think would be very hard to, to give to kids now. Mm. Um, 
on a sentence by sentence level and also because they're a little bit stuffy and, and so forth. But she's she's got great she's, stories. She's not like that. She's she's a great plotter and you yeah. and I We love her good plot. We like good plots. And I would think that as a child, if you're reading that, you are just inhaling perfect grammar. Mm. Even punctuation, I was I started to look at the commas because I routinely murder commas. And and I and I thought that this is how, this is actually how I learnt to write. Mm. Uh, I I wasn't taught grammar. No, no, there was But I. I read this stuff, mm. and it's like a a benign virus. You sort of you know what is a good sentence. Yeah, and I and I remember. Consciously. Yeah, I agree, and I remember just absolutely inhaling the naughtiest girl. I read them so many times, yeah. so many times, to the yeah. point where I. You know, particular incidents and what they look like laid out on the page because there were like a few little line drawings, yeah. not many, but a few little line drawings. And mm. when they, when a line drawing appeared, I remember what the line drawing looked like. Like they were so kind of formative. Yes. In yes. my reading. Yeah. And, you know, I absorbed all of that and all of the grammar and all of the language and mm. um, even those ideas about like fairness, I think. Yes. Because now I look at that school where they all have to put their money in, mm. in the tin and they all distribute it equally. Mm. I'm like, that is great bloody idea it's you know and, the, and you're right it's mm. fairness that that i that almost chivalric idea yeah. of, of fairness of a fundamental fairness and decency and an equality like yeah. it's not fair mm. that some mm. kids have have a lot of money no. that they can spend no. on sweets and no. and things it and mm. it's not fair that you know one poor kid doesn't have anything no. to spend the insider outsider thing is still a problem with the famous five because i was really mm. interested that the little fisherman's boy who looks after timmy he can just be ordered, you know, bring me Timmy, Timmy or look after Timmy. And he, I, I was getting quite outraged because they never asked Little Fisherman's Boy to yeah, become part, part of the, the famous five. Well, then they'd be the famous six. Yeah, well, then they'd a, be the, uh, yeah. And yeah. He's, the class politics are definitely there. Yeah, well, that just reminds me of Ellen Montgomery. You know, there was the yeah. same thing. There was always in Ellen, Ellen Montgomery was the biggest um, literary influence on my childhood. But um there was always the little French boy yeah. that lived that worked on the farm, and they were never friends yes. in the way that you could be friends. They maintain yeah. those boundaries, don't they? Yeah. And, but by the time we get to the little gypsy boy who has the dog Liz, to the confusion of these people, um, he's he's part, he he helps them. He he doesn't become a permanent member of the of the famous five, but his otherness is included mm. in a way that the poor little fisherman's boy isn't. Mm, he's just. He's there to serve the needs of the yeah, middle class children. So she's not perfect. She's she? definitely not perfect, no, but no. she's definitely interesting. She's fascinating. I think that's a lovely place to end our it discussion is. of Enid Blyton. I am going to go read some famous five, I think. <laughs> Sounds like just what I need. Yes, well, I've got several. You can you, you can borrow my famous five. Well, oh. I don't know. I'm feeling oh, no, I, I'm quite I, possessive I believe about I it. have some famous fives at home, which I have no memory some... of ever reading, but I probably, well, you, I think I do. I think you, I think you will be a better person. Okay, I will. Well, you should read The Naughtiest Girl in the School, right, and then you'll be, and you'll okay. come fully over to the communist side of the fence. Oh, I will. All right. You'll be like 100% taxation. Yeah. <laughs> Equal distribution of funds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No private property. No His private property. I know. Yeah. Capitalists. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So now that we have destroyed capitalism, yeah, um, well, we should go. Enid Blyton destroyed. Well, Enid Blyton destroyed capitalism the through the naughtiest girl in the school. Marxism yeah. and there's, there's a thesis in Yeah, there. the Marxist mm -hmm. Enid Blyton. Mm -hmm. I like it. Um, okay. So thank you, Lee. Thank you, Stephanie. This has been a delight as usual. Yes, um, I can't believe it was my idea. It was your oh, idea. Oh, oh. What great ideas you have. <laughs> 
Um, all right. So we'll see you guys in a week. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. Uh, thank you, Lee, once again. Thank you, Stephanie. And see you soon. See you.